the biggest changes for him was the fact that you used to get up and say, please open your Bibles to, and now you have to say, please open your, your internet browsers to, or open your Bible app to. So we're going back to James chapter 4, so whatever method you have for getting there, uh, whether it's a, a commentary or, or something else, that would be appropriate. And I'm trying to do the same thing. Okay. So we've been talking about the cure for conflict, and uh, Brother Stephen already has one song picked out for uh, next week uh, because he thought I might get to verses 13 to 17 today, and I, I thought, nope, not going to make it there. So uh, at any rate, he's, uh, he's one week ahead of us on, on choosing things, which will be a great deal. So we're going to go back to the cure for conflict, and we're going to look at uh, look at it in a different way. We're going to talk about God's justice because uh, James is going to ask us a very good question uh, in this particular part uh, of James. He's going to ask us, who are we to judge? I don't know if you all ever do that. You, you, you meet someone and sometimes it's just as simple as forming uh, an instant opinion on them and you, you instantly decide what you, you know, how you think that person is and you uh, you you just think, oh, well, I'm not going to like that person or that person and I would never G and haul together or uh, something like that. And so it's interesting how quickly we judge people. Um, I tend, I have tended in the past, not, not so anymore, but I've tended in the past when you meet somebody and they're, uh, you know, they've got kind of a guy and he's got kind of long hair and he's wearing chains on his jacket and uh, he's got tattoos on his arms and wearing a tattered t-shirt you think I'm not sure this guy and I are going to be in the same social circles but uh, I've gone to enough gun shows now that I, I like these guys and they're the guys I want next to me in, in the trenches when the end comes you know and so uh, you find out that you, you do have a lot in common sometimes and, and that's a good thing. So, you know, a lot of times we make the mistake, and of course Jesus warned us, he said, judge not by men's appearances, but judge righteous judgment. And I think that's a good counsel for all of us, is to make sure that, that we judge a righteous judgment. I'm going to say All right, so let's, we're going to look, first of all, at the actions of true justice. And justice is when God judges, not when we judge. Uh, but it happens when, when God judges. And there we go. James chapter 4, we're going to go back over verses we went last week, but we're going to look at them differently this week. Look at them from a different perspective. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves there in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And uh, there's basically in these verses that we've just read a series of ten Greek imperative, aorist imperative verbs. These are things that we're to do. Uh, we're to do them kind of at once and they, they should have been a part of our lives at some point. Hopefully they still are a part of our lives. But these are imperative verbs. And, you know, the Bible has a lot of imperatives. Uh, this is not a list of suggestions these are a list of commands. And, and basically, overall, we can say that James called for commitment. In verse 7, he called for uh, cleansing, that is, purify your hearts, you, know, you double-minded, and cleanse your hands, you sinners. 
uh, is in verse 8, and then contrition in, in verse 9 to humble ourselves before God. And, and these are those imperative verbs. And again, there's a total of 10, and I, I went through them last week, although I erroneously listed number one as humble yourselves because it's in the verse right before. But number one in this list here is submit. And uh, I lumped together the, uh, the mourn and weep as one. And uh, no, no great injustice done by doing that, but I just wanted you to know that the the list will be a little different looking uh, today for, for that reason. Uh, so uh, we're going to look at those verbs again, but I want to look at them a different way in that James is going to talk to us in how these verbs cause us to relate to others. And he's going to get to that in, in the verses that follow, basically verses 10 through 12. And we're going to hear how these relate to others. So we want to go back and look at these how would us, following these commands, cause us to change our behavior toward others or keep from being judgmental of others? Um, and, and again, it's like a magnet. It has a positive pole and a negative pole. Like a coin, it has two sides, a head side and a tail side. Well, there's two commands that are the heads and the tail or the north and south pole of the magnet. One is to submit to God and the next one is resist the devil. Those two things have to come together. They're, they're two sides of the, the same coin, essentially. This word submit means to, to render obedience or arrange yourself under the authority of another. Uh, and chain of command in the military is very important. And you have to always understand that chain of command or you get in great uh, trouble. And so you learn how to respect that chain of command. You learn to read ranking signia on people's collars and on their hats and on their different uniforms and sometimes it's just a pin on the collar you know that, that may be the only place you see the sergeant stripes on a pair of fatigues other times you'll see the stripes sewn to the side of a khaki uniform but you got to learn wherever it is to know where that person stands in relation to how you stand in the military so you know uh, when you have to initiate a salute to begin with and uh, who can tell you to do push-ups and who can't and and uh, uh, even even within ranks, there are exceptions. There are sometimes, for example, a military policeman might only be a sergeant, but somebody who's a captain might have to obey that policeman, not because of his rank, but because of the office that he holds. So you have to understand all those different roles and, and distinctions. But the point is, is when we're in a proper relationship to God's authority, we understand that he's the judge and not us. Uh, he is the one sitting on the throne of heaven. He's the one that made the laws. He's the one that wrote the laws. He's the one that administers the laws. He's the one that can nullify a law when it no longer has any effect, kind of like the, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament or the dietary laws of, uh, of the Old Testament. And I, by the way, I'm not saying that the dietary laws don't still have some significance. There's still some reasons that you might not want to eat as much pork as you would other things because there's more toxins in that kind of meat. So there's health reasons you could do it, but it's no longer wrong for us to eat pork, and I'm happy about that because bacon and I are on good terms with each other. I actually have a pair of socks that I wear at home that if my shoes are off and you read the bottom of my socks from left to right, it, it, it says, if you see this, bring me bacon. And so uh, that's, you know, I've got a pair of socks that says that. Uh, but but we got to understand that we're, we're subjects of the Lord to be judged by him, and therefore we're not in a position to be judged by others. Others will be judged by him too, 
But we can judge others because we ourselves are subjects uh, to his judgment. Our only real job is just to live under his authority. So when we submit to God, it means I just need to remember I'm under authority. I'm not the one sitting on the judgment seat. I'm not the one sitting on the throne to, to make those judgments. The, the flip side of the submit to God is that we have to resist the devil. It's the opposite coin, uh, but it does the same thing. In other words, we have to choose who we're going to serve. Are we going to serve the Lord or are we going to serve the devil? Paul makes this really clear in Romans chapter 6, by the way. Uh, he says, you know, for whether we yield our members as servants of unrighteousness unto sin or that we yield our, our members as servants of righteousness unto holiness. We've got that choice. We have to pick which one we're going to do, but it's not like there's a third choice. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral. Uh, we can't play the, uh, like, the, like we're the country of Switzerland trying to walk the fine line down the middle. No, you've got to choose one or the other, and that's why these are two poles of the, the same magnet. If anyone resists the devil, the good news is the coward flees us. Now, uh, trust me, I have respect for the devil's intelligence and I, I have seen his methods at work and I have, I have been uh, within <laughs> very close contact with demon-possessed people and their demon possession is still a very real thing and a very live thing today. So I, I have respect for Satan's power, but he has no power in the life of a Christian. And so I don't mind calling him a coward. Uh, it's interesting, Judy's uh, father has a double first cousin, Dwayne Turner, and I was his associate pastor up in Plano for some years. And uh, I noticed that whenever Dwayne would write uh, sermon notes and he had the word Satan in his sermon notes, he would never capitalize the S. And one day I thought to, to say, you know, that is a proper noun. You're supposed to capitalize it. He says, I'm not going to give Satan that much respect to capitalize his name. And I thought, okay, I understand the reason now. So uh, I thought, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. If you take it so seriously, you're not even going to give the guy a capital letter. Uh, but uh, the, if, if he flees from us, and again, I pointed out that quote from the shepherd of Hermas last week. I just love it so much I thought I'd repeat it, that, that the devil can wrestle against the Christian, but he cannot throw him. Now, one of the ways we resist the devil is to resist the temptation he gives us to be judgmental. He wants us to judge others. He wants to cause division. You remember, remember that verse in Proverbs that there are six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven which are an abomination to him. Do you all remember what number seven is? See, six, uh, when, he's, when that formula is used in Proverbs, it says there's six things. There's a proud look, and there's a lying tongue, there's a haughty spirit, and it goes on. Uh, but... When it says there's six that are, you know, things the Lord hates, but the seventh is an abomination, that means that's the one God hates the most. It's he that soweth discord among the brethren. And see, if we start judging each other, we can't have peace and harmony because we're looking down on each other. We're, we're having discord among us. And that, the devil loves that. It's, it's like a glee fest for him when he can get us judging each other and, and uh uh, not just in the, in the bonds of the church, but out there too. If we can go around with a judgmental attitude rather than seeing individuals as people who need Jesus Christ and we need to show the compassion of Christ to them, then he, he gets away with everything and, and he wins the game. So we need to show them the love of Christ and know that other people are in need of God's mercy. If you see somebody that you think, oh, I might not be socially compatible with them, and you start getting that little temptation to, to look down on that person, just remember, that person needs Jesus. That person needs to know there's a better way. 
Uh, and there's, there's people that, you know, aggravate me when I see a man that doesn't treat his husband, uh, doesn't treat his wife appropriately, uh, you know, uh, th- then that bothers me. I think women deserve respect and they deserve someone who's chivalrous in their life and needs someone that opens the door for them and treats them like a princess. And if you're not going to do that, you know, that's the, I, I might think after I watched you being unkind to your wife, and I've seen a lot of men be unkind to their wives, that, that you know, there would be a tendency for me to judge, but I need to be able to look at that individual and say, that husband really needs to understand that there's a better way to be a husband. He needs to know that God's way is the best way. And we need to know that God has uh, a reason for us to cherish our wives. They are our radar that keeps us from flying into a mountain by making stupid decisions. And that's what we need in our lives. So uh, what we should do instead is whenever we think that we're uh, we're tempted to judge someone, realize it's a temptation from Satan that keeps us from sharing the gospel with them. And instead of judging them, realize they're people in need of God's grace. You ever heard that saying that people start looking like their dogs after a while? Well, if you look really close at these pictures, you can kind of see that. Um, and, and there's a lot of truth to that, although frankly, I, frankly, I spend a, a little enough time with uh, our two dogs that they don't look like me. Uh, they, they do know I'm the alpha male in the house and, and uh, uh, they kind of cower in fear when they see me in spite of the fact I've never physically done anything to them. They just know that when I give commands, people jump and they, they do too. And our, our poor Dalmatian, he is just terrified of me. Now the, the, the Labrador will come up and he'll sit down on the floor. By the way, a little piece of advice, if you ever think you're going to be financially strapped, do not get a dog that eats 40 pounds of dog food every week. Uh, but uh, at any rate, the Labrador will come up and sit there and he loves to be petted. But he's learned by watching the Dalmatian that he's supposed to be a little scared of me too. I, I don't know if you know this, Dalmatians, they don't want you to be upset with them. They want to be friendly, and so they bare their teeth. And it's called the Dalmatian smile. Now, other dogs, when they bare their teeth, watch out, because usually there's a growl behind it, they're going to bite you. Dalmatians bare their teeth. They're trying to make friends. And so they go around grinning like this. Labradors are not supposed to bare their teeth. They're just supposed to come up, look like a dog, and you pet them. But our Labrador has learned from the Dalmatian that every time he sees us, he's supposed to bare his teeth to smile at us. You know, dogs pick up behavior from other dogs. It's, it's bizarre and it's a little strange. But uh, I, I even found a few stranger examples than these. But believe me, that's, that's strange enough. I really enjoy that picture at the bottom left there of the, the lady with the cocker spaniel. And both of them have the same hairdo. Uh, but... The thing is, we become like that which, to which we draw near. Uh, you know, I don't think I would have any problems, any of you. Let, let's say you had never met us before or ever met Steve and Belinda before, and you walk into the auditorium, there's a couple of hundred people there, and maybe I'm looking at uh, something on this table with Steve and Judy and Belinda over here. It still probably wouldn't take you long to be able to figure out who belongs to whom. Because after 41 years of marriage, we just look like a couple. You ever, you ever notice that? Some couples just look like a couple and you see them, oh, those two belong together. That, that must be husband and wife. Um, we, we develop some common habits and some common likenesses, maybe some common uh, commonality to our appearances or something, maybe because we're on the same diet. 
But more importantly, I think it's just it, we look like we fit together. And you can just kind of sense when two people belong together. The more time we spend with one another, the, the more... Uh, the likeness of one person rubs off on the other. Now, after 41 years, I can still tell you that Judy and I are, are very different from one another. We have very different personalities. But over 41 years, a lot of her kindness and forgiveness has rubbed off on me. Uh, and so, uh, in some ways, my personality has greatly changed from what it was four decades ago because of her. And so, when we spend time with Christ... The, the thing that should happen is we should become more Christ-like. And, and when we do that, it should make us want to be more merciful to those uh, around us. And we should strive to live sacrificially for others as he died sacrificially for us. We should want to give of ourselves to improve someone else's life rather than looking down our noses at them and criticize them. And this is kind of a problem in a lot of the homeschooling community, for example, because we feel like that we, we homeschool our children for a reason because we're trying to produce, we're trying to prove to the world there's a better way of life and we try to produce a better quality of kid that comes out the end of our homeschool conveyor belt. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it, what goes wrong is when we look down at those who are not homeschooling and we look at them with a different attitude. We think, oh, well, look at them. They send their kids to public school. How bad is that? And, and that is the wrong attitude. The attitude is for us to spend time with Christ and just show others there's a better way of life and look at how you can be a servant to them and influence them. Now, God is the judge of all, but we're never to take from that that if we spend time with Him that we're therefore qualified to judge others too. Because what we should know is that judgment gives no pleasure to God. In fact, is I can prove that to you. 1 Timothy 1, 14-15. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Not to judge sinners. Now, He will do that someday, but why did He come into the world? To save sinners. That's His main focus. Of whom I am chief. Uh, Paul says later to Timothy... He says, uh, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. God's will is, and remember God's will, there's a complex theological subject right there as to what God's will is. There is his permissive will and there is his decreed will. And his decreed will is inviolate. Nothing can ever deter God's decreed will. He's already decreed a day and time for Christ's return, and that's inviolate. It's going to happen. He's already decreed the events that take place in the book of Revelation. Those things are going to happen. They can't, that can't be changed. It's, it's etched in stone at this point. But there's a permissive will. God doesn't force anybody, in my opinion, to come to Jesus Christ by a moving of the Holy Spirit. Because it's very clear... That while God has this power of election and has this power of choice, that his election and choice is primarily on nations rather than individuals. And the main thing it says to us as individuals is whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's our choice. In fact, in the matter, those people that want to take Calvinism to an extreme, I heard one guy said, well, you know, uh, you know, God already predetermined who was going to be saved, so... Why do missions? 
Well, that's, that's wrong. And that's what people, by the way, told uh, William Carey before he went to India. And we don't need to send missionaries there because God will raise up somebody there with, with the truth. Well, but Romans also says, how can they believe unless they hear a preacher? And how can they hear a preacher unless one be sent? We've got to, we've got to send the word. Uh, so we have to make an individual choice to receive the gospel. The thing is, none of us can do anything to affect the sovereignty of God, but all of us can do something to present Christ to the free will of, of man. And that's what we need to do. But look, he, he says his will, his, his desired will, not his enforced will, not his decreed will, but his, his will, his preference is to have all men saved and come to the knowledge of truth. It hurts God it hurts his heart as creator when any of his creation denies his existence. You know, there's a comedian, uh, Jeff Allen, who says that kids are God's great revenge on, on mankind because he says, go ahead and make someone in the likeness of your own image and see if they forget you. And that's kind of what happens in a lot of cases. But, and Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. So if we're going to be Christ-like, if that's what we strive for, what should we be doing? We should live sacrificially, give our lives in such a way that we're doing something to lead people to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, he says, draw near unto God. And, of course, the beautiful part of that promise, and it's one of my favorite promises in the New Testament, is that if we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Uh, and to draw near to God, though, you know, he says, hey, we've got to be cleansed. He says, you know, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, we have to have the right actions and the right attitudes to be able to draw near to God. And both of these are words that refer to ceremonial cleansing. And uh, it's very important to James that we do that. But he tells us we've got to draw near to God. Why? So we'll be like him. The next command was cleanse your hands. And this, again... This, it goes back to the sacrificial idea that we cleanse our hands. Um, and he calls the sinners, and those are, are people who live in disobedience to the law, those who live a corrupt life. But as we cleanse our hands, let's think of how that affects our neighbor. It means that we stop taking actions that harm our neighbors. We stop taking actions that harm our neighbors. I, I see uh, YouTube videos uh, often where someone moves into a neighborhood and looks like they've got a nice house and then they discover they have the, the neighbor from hell. They have the, the person who comes over and uh, leaves stuff on their lawn or who does stuff on their front porch or who damages this or that or who stays up all hours of the night uh, blaring music with speakers outside their house toward them and some kind of torture to get them off the property. We have people that steal from them. I watched a video the other day. This guy uh, had put up cameras uh, to catch who kept stealing stuff from uh, his piece of property that he went out to. And uh, he had videos of people coming and spray, spray painting the cameras. But he had a few cameras the guy didn't find, and he got video of this guy who was in his uh, late 50s, probably, or early 60s. And he's taking his four-wheeler, and he's taking his 
his uh, bows that he hunts with and a bunch of other stuff, and he'd taken him back, and he actually was able to follow him. He, had, he put GPS trackers inside these things. And by the way, I don't know if you, there's kind of a new thing going around that uh, Apple makes these little trackers, these little discs you can put on, and they go in anything, and, and uh, people are now using them to stalk people. They'll put one under your bumper to stalk you to know how to follow you home. And so if you have an Apple phone and you ever notice that uh, there's one of these sensors near you and then you realize it's going everywhere you're going, that means somebody put one of these trackers on you and they're tracking you. But he, he, he tracked his stuff and he noticed where his four-wheeler was. It was just down the road at another neighbor. And so he calls the police and he sits outside on the road all day long. The police come and they go and confront him. Then they go back and get a warrant and then they go back in to search the property. Uh, meanwhile, this guy never leaves. And so there's about a 20-minute long section of that video where this man just is apologizing. He says he doesn't know why he'd do it. It was there, and he just took it, uh, you know, without any thought to the morality of stealing from someone else. Um, and so, you know, you get bad neighbors from time to time, but that, that's a guy, that's a neighbor that needs Christ. It's a neighbor that needs the Lord. Uh, so we need, to, we need to use our actions not to retaliate, not to get revenge. It had been very easy for that guy to just bust down his neighbor's gate, go in and get his four-wheeler back and get all the other thing back, and then maybe do a little damage to his truck tires while he's there to take some revenge. Revenge is not for us. The Bible even says, Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. By the way, this is why it's not good for us to get angry, because the purpose of anger is vengeance. We want to get even. You know that old bumper sticker everybody has that says, I don't get mad, I just get even? Well, that's really anger. Uh, and that's not our purpose. It's up to God to level the scales. It's not up to us to do that. But we should look for actions to bless these neighbors that irritate us. And by the way, Judy's parents are probably listening for home. I want to be very clear. It's not, they're not the neighbor that's irritating me. And just, just in case I don't want to go home to hurt feelings. Uh, but... Uh, compassion and not revenge ought to be the hallmark of the Christian and it should characterize our believers. Uh, look at these passages. and I, I guess I didn't realize that when Jesus says this in the New Testament, he was quoting from the Old Testament. But Proverbs 24, 29. Now, there's two different interpretations of these verses. I'll share them both with you. But it says, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. That's, proper, that's uh, uh, actually from, well, that, that particular thing, that's from Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. And Jesus quotes it later in the New Testament, and then Paul quotes it too. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. I probably should have put all three references to that. Uh, but what is this heaping coals of, of fire thing? There's a couple of interesting interpretations to that. Um, sometimes a person's fire would go out and uh, they didn't have a lot of big lighters back then. And so what they would do is you would take some coals or embers off of your fire that were glowing red. You'd put them in a pan and this person, usually they had a lot of things that they carried in their hands, but they would carry it uh, on their heads and they would carry the, uh, the coals back there, put them down and then add some kindling to it and get a fire started. Uh, however, there's also an Egyptian uh, uh, thing that happened quite often in Egypt where a person who needed to be uh, repent of something would often carry a pan of burning coals on their head, 
showing their shame and showing how they were feeling uh, the effects of, of this, this guilt that was bothering them over something they had done. And, and uh, it, it kind of got a little painful carrying a hot pan on your head for a while. And it's one of the ways that they showed their sincerity when they were repenting to one of their gods or to an authority or someone in their family. But in both cases, the result is the same, is that in the first case, the kindness shown to an enemy makes them ashamed of being an enemy and, and they decide that they want God's blessing. You bless them and they feel ashamed for how they have treated you. Uh, similarly, with the Egyptian analogy, uh, you bless them and when you do so, it, it, it makes them feel the pain of their own wrong attitudes. And the idea is that they'll repent. Now, by the way, there are going to be some people who will never like you. The Bible says that the righteous man, it says that God makes even his enemies, that's the righteous man's, God makes our enemies to be at peace with us. However, that's our enemies. He never makes his enemies at peace with us. There are people that hate God and they will always hate God's people. That's why Jesus told his disciples, if, you, if, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. Same people are going to hate you. But God, people that are offended by us or they take a disliking to us, if we respond in the right spirit, they can learn to love us again or they can learn at least to respect us again. Um, by the way, let me tell you something. You cannot control uh, what the idiots out there do that will irritate you, but you can control your response to that. You can decide whether to respond graciously uh, or not. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what's important. Now, why do we do good to our enemies? Well, because Jesus himself commanded us. I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Look at that. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Uh, can, I, can I just tell you something? This is not my normal Texas boy reaction. Uh, my Texas boy reaction says there's a six-hour P220 on my hip. Let me settle my problems that way. Yes, there is one there. Just checking. Uh, so, uh, but uh, or get a pick up a two by four, knock some sense into the critter. Okay, but this is this is what how God wants us to deal with this problem. Do good to those that hate us. Um, my mother, I think, must have been a, a master at this because. She had a way, even when people were being unkind to her, to return kindness or soft words to them. And by the way, Proverbs says, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Uh, it's good for us to know how to give a softer kind answer. How does purifying our hearts change how we treat people? Well, purifying our hearts is getting the right attitudes and the right thoughts in our head. And of course, Romans 12 is the, 2 is maybe the best verse of this. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by a renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Transform means, uh, it's, it's the word metamorphosis in Greek, from which we get, you know, how a caterpillar changes to a butterfly. The word conformed uh, is rather interesting too. It means have the same image, manner, or bearing that the other has. So in other words, he's saying we shouldn't have the same looks or the same deportment or the same behavior that the world has, we should be so different to the world that we're relevant. Because if we're not different from the world, we're not relevant to it. The reason Jesus is so relevant to the world is there's nobody else like him. He's different to the world. 
And so we need to be different. Instead, we need to be transformed and changed from one thing into a totally different thing, and that is by the, the will of God. But we have a real problem mentally, and we have an attitude issue if we think it's okay for us to judge others. Because basically we, we're saying, hey, I'm on the throne, or hey, there's nothing wrong with me, so I'm fully qualified to see what's wrong in somebody else. Uh, you know, what you ought to see when somebody's struggling with something or somebody has a character flaw with something, you ought to be able to do what Jesus said, and you know, find the little splinter in your eye or the beam in your eye before you get the splinter out of their eye. Most of the time, the things that irritate us and others are things that we ourselves uh, do poorly or areas that we struggle in. So rather than criticize them, go over and encourage them. Say, you know what? Fellowship is two boats in the same ship, and I, I you know, I, or two fellows in the same ship, and I'm, I'm feel like you. I, I've struggled with some of the same issues. Could I share with you how Christ helped me in that area? And get the permission and share with them, encourage them. Uh, they'll, they'll much rather listen to someone who's been through the same struggle and gotten through it than they're going to listen to somebody for whom it's just a pie in the sky, uh, you know, academic learning kind of exercise. And they don't want somebody who looks down on them. They want somebody that has been where they are and knows how to, to uh, help them. And they're looking for help in life. But we're in a pride problem. We're not sitting on a throne. We're not looking down at those who are beneath us. And we need to have our heart purified of any attitude that ever makes us think that we're better than that. And then he says, be afflicted. And and this word, uh, talaporosite, is is the full full word there. Uh, The Greek uh, historian Thucydides used it this way. I mentioned it last time. This is the word of an army that has been devoid of resources and uh, they have no shelter from the stormy weather. So it's a little bit like not having eaten for 14 days and you can't find a safe port. Uh, You're you're at the end and uh, you don't have any lavish luxury left. We need to be afflicted in the sense that we know that without Jesus Christ we have absolutely nothing. There's no good in me without Christ. Absolutely nothing. I can't help anybody on my own. I can't save anybody on my own. I can't give wise counsel on my own because all wisdom comes from, all godly wisdom comes from above. Uh, And I know what godly wisdom looks like, but I have to get it somewhere. That's why James starts this epistle with, Let him ask of God who giveth liberally to all men and upbraideth not. We've got to ask for wisdom if we lack it. Uh, So if we're not anything without Christ, then how are we qualified to judge anybody? We're, we're, we're nobodies without him. So we shouldn't sit in the judgment seat. And in fact is we shouldn't criticize people for their sins because we need to do a little more mourning and grieving over our own. Maybe you know somebody that's sinning really bad. Maybe right now you know a, a person who's living in adultery. That's bad. Uh, but you know what? To God, all sins are pretty much on an equal level. And I'm sure we each have some moral compromises in our own life that we need to confess. Uh, that'd probably be a good time to do that when we have a song of invitation in just a few minutes. This command, mourn and weep, and really these are two, I've lumped them together. Mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Um, 
we, we need to recognize that we have to have that cleansing and we need to recognize that our sin has hurt the heart of God. And rather than judge somebody because of the, how evil they are or how compromising they are, we need to develop the attitude, you're missing out on life because you're hurting the heart of God and you're not getting to know His blessings. Can I share with you how to live a life where you can enjoy a relationship with God for all eternity? How can I share with you a life that still has struggles but is full of blessing and experiences the care of God. We need to feel the sorrow we've caused the, the heart of God. And then we need to feel sorrow for the harm we're doing to our own lives when we're not living under authority. And then we should want to help other people get under God's authority rather than George, judge them. What about this one? Humble yourself in, in God's sight. Well, only the humble can know the benefits or blessings of God, which are what? Well, salvation is a benefit. Uh, uh, it says, He shall save the humble person. Honor is a benefit. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Uh, revival from God's presence. You get to spend presence in the tide of God, uh, in, in the presence of God, he says, and, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Exalt the lowly becomes the lifted. This is a great benefit. In fact, is the, the big advantage of God's justice system is the way up is down. The way to be exalted is to humble yourself. So, here again, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he shall lift you up. Speak not evil. Don't judge people. Don't be critical of them. Keep your mouth shut. Don't only say, my mother used to say, if you can't say something nice, say nothing at all. And I still find that advice in my head all the time. I hear my mother saying it to this day, even though she's been with the Lord for a few years now. Uh, speak not evil one another, brethren. He that speaketh evil his brother and judges his brother speaks evil the law and judges the law. But if thou judge the law, they are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, we need to break a little bit of this down here. Uh, but the, the first thing is, we've we got to not speak evil of one another. And he goes on, verse 11 and 12. Speak not evil uh, of one another, brethren. He that speaketh evil his brother, judges his brother, speaks of the law, judges the law. But if thou art a judge of the law, not a doer of the law, but a judge, then he adds this. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? In other words, who, are you, who, who qualified you uh, to, to do that? Okay? So the first thing here is the way up is down. If you ever want to be exalted, you need to learn how to practice humility. Uh, by the way, the guy that goes around uh, the office or in your, your place of work and he's always bragging about his own abilities and his own accomplishments and uh, about his own academic achievements and about his own credentials, that's the guy nobody wants to sit next to during a dinner party. Nobody wants that. The guy, though, that uses self-deprecating humor and he, he uh, is a humble servant to others and he puts others before himself, that's the guy that they're going to respect. Uh, and so the cue is humility. You humble yourself before the Lord and he... Will lift you up. Now, by the way, it's much better for God to lift you up than for you to try to lift yourself up. Because when God lifts you up, it's notable and it works and it catches people's attention. When you lift yourself up, it just aggravates everybody. Uh, fact is, remember 1 Corinthians 13 when it gives all the different tests for love? One of the things it says in the King James Version, it says, uh, Love vaunteth not itself up, it is not puffed up. 
In other words, we don't, we don't promote ourselves and we don't get stuck up on ourselves. That's the wrong thing to do. But when you humble yourself, serve others, then God lifts you up. He gets you the notice. The way up is down. I think that's an interesting phrase. Maybe that's the one thing you'll remember out of the sermon. The lowly becomes the lifted. So there's a marked advantage to real humility. That is that it brings you honor. Uh, now, there's some demands to justice. And I, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago my fascination with the old black and white TV show Perry Mason. And how the district attorney, uh, Hamilton Berger, always said it's irrelevant, it's incompetent, it's immaterial. Every single show that he was in. The only time you didn't hear it is when there was a different attorney. But, but he's in 95% of all the shows and, and 100% of the 95% he's in, he says this. But, but when you have a case that comes before court, there's some, some tests. And by the way, this thing, it's incompetent, irrelevant, it's immaterial. Lawyers still say that. It's not just a Perry Mason line. Uh, but things have to be competent. For, for example, uh, if, you, if you just advance a stupid idea for which there's no evidence, that's incompetent. Uh, so it has to be uh, an intelligent idea and it has to be associated with some kind of evidence. It has to be relevant. So you can't just bring in random material to waste the court's time. It's unlike when you're doing a Senate filibuster and you just want to read uh, for four hours from Merriam-Webster's dictionary and you can do that if you want to. Uh, that's not, that's not uh, acceptable behavior in the courtroom. What you say has to be relevant to the case at hand and then it has to be material. In other words, it must deal with the material facts of the case. And it, it can't be, you can't bring, oh, well, so-and-so thought that. That's not evidence. You have to give actual facts and material evidence. So it has to be material. And so we have Hamilton Berger. I just want to show you this. So if you're not a Perry Mason fan, I want you to hear how this uh, plays Your out. Your Honor, I object. That question is incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. And he says it in every show. And sometimes he adds on to I it. I object, Your Honor. Not only is the question incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial, but counsel is fully aware I covered none of that in direct examination. By the way, every once in a while, I've only ever heard Perry Mason do it once. I've heard him use those words one time about Hamilton Berger. So it is a common thing. But the interesting thing is, is that when Hamilton Berger uses against Perry Mason, it never is incompetent, irrelevant, immaterial. He just doesn't see the link that Perry Mason's about to create. So our slanders, and I, when we say slander, uh, there's libel and there's slander, okay? Uh, we can slander someone verbally, you libel people in writing. They're the same thing, but two different areas. One's verbal and one's in writing. And when we say something bad about another person and it's not substantiated with facts, then there, there's problems. For example, if I were to get up here, because this is a common thing that was in the news this last week, it's the only reason that it's in my uh, memory at the moment, uh, but, uh, you know, if, if I got up here and told you that uh, Fout, Mr. Fauci, who's been uh, heading up all of our coronavirus uh, guidelines and stuff, uh, that I thought he was in it for uh, the money and there had to be some financial ties somewhere, uh, that would basically be libel if, uh, if I wrote it down. It would be slander if I said it verbally because I have no evidence. However, there's a guy on the Internet, has a YouTube channel, his name's Ronan. I forget the name of the, the Internet channel. Interesting fellow, though. And uh, YouTube, if you make statements like that, like 
you know, Trump's or not, uh, Biden stole the election or Fauci's in it for the money, uh, they just kick you off your YouTube channel. You don't have a YouTube channel anymore because they're doing as much as they can to, to uh, filter the narratives only what's told. However, this guy is good about always putting documented facts. So he released a video last week that showed actual documents showing that Biden had financial interest in the Wuhan lab and the creation of the coronavirus and in the companies that uh, are making the vaccines. And he documented this. And, and he just gets on and he, he says, well, this document was found, says this, this document was found. And he doesn't tell you what to believe. He leaves it to, your, to you to do that. Well, that's fine if you're going to present evidence. But when we slander someone, we just get up and speak evil to somebody, first of all, we're incompetent to judge others. None of us know enough of the facts to really judge others. Uh, I think I shared with you last week the, the fact that uh, uh, Michael Hicks, the guy that hit me in the head with a baseball bat in the fourth grade at Eastside Elementary School in Jacksonville, Texas, and left a big uh, uh, bump on my noggin for a while. Uh, I, that day I decided he was my enemy. I decided he was bad news. But then God later let me see the, the environment that Michael Hicks lived in. I had to, years later, give him a ride home one day, and I took him to his house, and there were empty bottles of alcohol all over. His mother wasn't anywhere around. He lived with a drunk father, uh, and he himself had been abused, and I thought, now I understand why he had to take his anger out on somebody, and I just happened to be the convenient uh, skull near his bat that day. Uh, and I saw him in a whole different way. Well, see, when I'm, I'm getting ready to criticize somebody, I might not know about that background. I might not know what motivates them. If I had, I would have been much more motivated in the fourth grade to be a friend of this guy and, and try to, to tell him that Jesus loved him. That would have been an important thing for him uh, to have known. But So we're incompetent to judge others. Now, competent evidence, there's a legal definition for that. It means it must be admissible. In other words, the judge has to allow that into the case because it's relevant and it was obtained in a legal way, and it has to be relevant to the issue at hand. <laughs> but anything we bring up, our opinions of somebody are irrelevant to the case. They have nothing whatsoever to do it. Well, so our opinions are irrelevant to God's justice. So relevant evidence makes an interpretation of other evidence more probable. So, for example, if two people are suing in a court and one of them says, well, I bought this car from so-and-so, I've got a contract for it, and, and you're trying to establish the fact that this auto salesman has a, a history of bad sales and selling lemons or whatever because you're trying to get a judgment against him, uh, one case may not be enough. Uh, what will happen, though, is if other people come up and they have testimonies and they have bills of sale showing the same guy also sold them lemons, maybe even sold them the same car which they took back and then he resold it to somebody else, well, then that becomes relevant evidence because it, it makes the first evidence they had, this first guy's complaint, more probable to be interpreted in a certain way, that is, that the guy misrepresented the facts about the car and sold it maybe multiple times. Uh, so our, our opinions are irrelevant because what we think doesn't matter to God. He already knows everything. He doesn't need my opinion. And then our thoughts about others are immaterial when it comes to God's final judgment. In other words, God has never called me and asked for my opinion on anything. Now, 
I have opinions sometimes that, of things I'd like to ask the Lord about someday. I, I am convinced that when we see God, all of our questions will instantly disappear. Because we will say, wow, I see you did it right. <laughs> we will instantly agree with everything that God has done. Now, right now, though, I've got some questions. You know, I have some questions about why certain things went a certain way politically or why certain events happened. Why did my dad finally get his act together as a dad just weeks before his stroke that left him paralyzed for the rest of his life? I'd like to know that. Uh, but God does things right. And I can't doubt uh, God's ways. And the thing is, my thoughts are immaterial to anything. So what I think about someone, what I say about somebody, the opinion I hold about somebody is, as Hamilton Berger would say, incompetent, irrelevant, and immaterial. In fact, as we'll add a word, it's also incongruous. It means it doesn't match up with my mission in life. My mission in life is to put forth the character of Christ in my life. I'm not to judge others. I, I'm rather to obey God and I'm to obey His law. And the fact is, he says, if you judge others, you become a judge of the law. Why? Because if I start judging people, I assume I know what God's standards of righteousness are. Now, by the way, I had someone call me. Actually, it was a text exchange several months ago, a close friend. And this friend said in their message that their spouse had done something uh, they basically said they've gone somewhere from which they can't return. In other words, to this particular spouse, their significant other had done something so heinous in their mind that they said that they had asked their spouse for divorce. And so for months, literally, I'm wondering what happened. This is a marriage that, you know, people I admired, people I respected, people I loved, and I, I, my heart is broken as a pastor and as a friend for what in the world is going on that, that, that would even make a person think divorce. If you're a Christian and you're married to a Christian, the word divorce should never come up in your vocabulary. You work it out. Okay, that's the only biblical option we have. We don't get divorced, we work it out. Um, and, and I'm going to tell you guys a secret that 90% of the time you're at odds with your wife, you're wrong. In fact, it'd be okay if you just thought you were wrong 100% of the time. Marriage will go much easier for you. So just take the blame and move on, okay? Uh, But uh, when I finally found out what had happened, it was that one spouse misinterpreted and took out of context a single statement the other spouse made. Now, what have I been thinking for months? I'm thinking... Well, did that person commit adultery? Did they, did they abuse one of the children? You know, I'm thinking all these horrific things because I know for, for Judy or I to ever use the word divorce, it'd have to be the most heinous of things for us to even entertain the issue, and we never would because we promised we never would. But it just turned out it was one comment that hit them wrong. Uh, and so the thing is, this spouse was judging their partner as having a different intent or a wrong thought in their heart, and it's not what the partner meant. I talked to the partner. Uh, I talked to that person, and they, they told me 
what they meant, but it came out with unfortunate wording. You ever done that? Have you ever tried to say something, but the words didn't come out your mouth like what you meant them to be? Uh, and that's why you really ought to think before you speak more often. It works much better. So, uh, but you hear one statement and you judge your partner as having an intent or a spirit that's different than what the words were meant to be. See, we all pull other people's words through our own filter. And, and we get words in a certain way. And so uh, we, we should never think that we're in a position to judge the law. The law is based on facts, not what we think is in a person's heart. Okay, who is it that can see our heart? There's only one person I know of. That's God. God sees my heart. I, I, I really went through a struggle with this during the days of the Bill Clinton presidency because I wanted to criticize him. That's not what the Bible tells me to do. First Timothy chapter 2 tells me I was to pray for the man. And, but it took me a long time, and then I, I, I got, finally got, God finally got through to me. You can't see the thoughts and intents of his heart. You can only judge his actions. We can judge people's actions. We can, we can know if somebody's a real Christian maybe by the fruit of their lives, but I don't really know your heart. You could be a really good fake, and I'm really stupid. Uh, but that's, that's what we have to look at. Uh, now, to judge another is a judgment of God's law itself, and none of us should assume a haughty position over the law. Uh, the slanderer is sentenced by the law. If you say something bad about someone else, there is a legal penalty for it in our society. There was a legal penalty for it in Scripture. If you said something to damage someone's reputation and it could not be proved, you could be sentenced for that thing that's done. Uh, the judge who interprets the law his own way rather than following the letter of the law uh, or at least following the spirit of the law, if they just want to make exceptions and loopholes for everything or ignore the law, uh, that person uh, lo jeopardizes losing their own position. I watched a video the other day of a woman judge who was hauled in by the police for illegal activity. And she kept saying, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? Because she was a judge and she thought her position as a judge put her above the law. None of us are above the law. Judges are not above the law. And if they abuse the law, they become victims of the law. The only in God's system of justice, the only person that gets honored is the humble person. The humble person that puts himself at the mercy of God's court and accepts his mercy and accepts his forgiveness. That's the person that gets honored. So true justice is rendered when a believer subjects himself in humility to God and in obedience to him because God's justice is satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, who is the author of justice? There is one lawgiver, he says. So, so who is this person? Who is this lawgiver? Uh, there's only one. Uh, the lawgiver is the only person that has the rights to modify it. Now, in our society, we have a legislature that creates laws. Then they have to be signed into existence by the president uh, at the executive branch. And it's the executive branch's job to enforce uh, the implementation of those laws and then it's the judicial's branch to know when a violation of those laws has occurred and what penalties to inflict on a person who violates this law. But God 
has the right to modify or overrule law, yet he always acts in consistency with his own character. You don't see God overruling his own laws. Now, he does, as I mentioned, nullify. We do not have to keep uh, the Passover sacrifices anymore because 1 Corinthians 5.2 says Christ is our Passover. He, he is the final Passover sacrifice. So all those laws about Passover, we don't have to monkey with those anymore. Uh, all those laws about uh, not eating pork or shrimp or, or lobster. Uh, in the book of Acts, Peter sees a vision of all these unclean things coming down. And, and uh, Peter, is, as a good Jew, is abhorred by these things. And, and then Jesus' voice says, Call not that thing unclean which I have made clean. And the point he's trying to get across to Peter is Peter needs to also, like Paul, share the gospel with the Gentiles. Uh, but it also means that the dietary laws aren't that important for us anymore. It's not a part of our salvation to not eat pork. Not a part of our salvation, though we can't eat shrimp, thank God. Uh, it's, you know, it's not a part of our salvation that we can't eat bacon, thank God again. Okay. Uh, the, now, to not fix it where it's just right, it get too crispy and it's burnt, that's a sin. Okay. Um, or for it to be so floppy that it doesn't you know, hold in one piece, that's also a sin. It's got to be perfect. But anyway, we can still eat it. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, that may necessarily might not always be the healthiest choice of things we could do. But, but God never contradicts his own character or his own purposes. Uh, in other words, he doesn't just rewrite a law because it's inconvenient for him. He's the lawgiver and the judge. Now, this word lawgiver is made up from two other words, namas, which means law, and tithemi, which means to set or place or lay down. And so he is the the one who sets or places the laws. He is the, the lawgiver uh, in James 12. Now, he authorized the law, but he also administrates the law. And in fact, is God serves all three branches of government. And in fact, is our founding fathers, when they were trying to set up um, the what form of government we would have here in the United States, they looked at how the nation of Israel was administered. And they discovered that there needed to be three parts of government. And that's interesting because there's three parts of God, or, or at least three uh, persons of God, let's say it that way. But, but he makes the laws or authors them. That's like our legislative branch. He carries out the law by declaring the law and doing those righteous acts that are necessary to fulfill his purposes. That's the executive branch. And he carries out judgments. That's the judicial branch. And he upholds and enforces the law. And he's the one that can both save and destroy. So there's one author of the law, one judge of the law. And the good news is that there's, there's another part of the law here too, and that's an advocate. The advocate's the one that when we break the law can come and defend our case before the judge. And Hebrews says that our advocate before the Father is Jesus Christ. And every time we do something wrong, that, uh, uh, do you all know what the word diabolus means? Diabolus is, the, is uh, where we get the word diabolical from. It's one of the names of Satan in the New Testament in the Greek. Diabolus, it means the accuser. One, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. So when you and I mess up, when we fail, Satan goes to the throne room of God and he accuses us of we have sinned and therefore we deserve eternal punishment. But we have an advocate with the Father, that is Jesus Christ, who simply has to look at the God the Father, the judge, and say, my blood's already paid for those sins. 
that account's already settled, that person can't be convicted again. I like that. I have an advocate with the Father. That's why I don't have to worry about old sins coming back and biting me. But, but here's the question James ends this passage with. Who are we to judge? But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? What's your qualifications? Do you know everything that's in that man's heart? Nope. Well, you're not qualified. Do you know everything about the circumstances of that fellow's life that hit you in the head with a baseball bat? Nope. Well, then you're not qualified to be the judge of another. So James is using a rhetorical question that looks for a negative answer, but he's attacking this kind of haughty attitude that some of his readers had that because they were Jewish Christians, they could look down their nose at Gentile Christians. Or they could look down their nose at those who didn't keep the old Jewish laws as well as they did. But a humble attitude and just actions are necessary for spiritual growth. Now next time, James is going to go on in the following verses. That's verses 13 to 17. And we'll use the song that Brother Steve found for those verses next week. uh, About why we shouldn't get involved in empty boasting. But go to now you who say that you'll go into such and such a city and you'll do this or that. What is your life? It's even but a a vapor that appeareth for a while and then vanisheth away. Uh, We don't even have control over our future plans. So we shouldn't be judging a brother. And we shouldn't be boasting about our own plans because they're beyond our control. And that's what we'll get into next week. So how do we, what do we do with this sermon today? I'm willing to, to guess that there's someone in every one of our lives to whom we're prone to judge. could be a politician. Uh, it could be an adult who won't work for a living and sponges their existence off of others. It could be a man that doesn't care for his wife or children or treats them cruelly. It could be a couch potato who does nothing with his or her life but stay in front of the TV all the time. It could be people who are less fit than, uh, than ourselves. Uh, you know, I notice now, by the way, just FYI, I know this is free, I weigh less today than I've weighed in over 20 years, and that's, that's a big accomplishment. Uh, but now I notice that I, I see other people eating something that I know I'm not supposed to eat, and I think, oh, I wish I could tell them they don't need to eat that because they're damaging their insulin levels, they're damaging their blood sugar, and I know I used to eat that same thing, and I'm so glad I don't, but I have to be careful that I don't develop a judgmental attitude. I just want to help those people. Uh, but it's people less fit than yourselves. People who, uh, oh, and, and I tell you, when you go to the gym and lift weights, one of the unwritten rules of lifting weights in a gym is don't give advice that's not asked for. But inevitably, I saw, I saw a guy up there the other day, and he, you know, he's this young 20-something, you know, tall, thin, stud kind of guy, and he had one of his buddies up there, and he was showing his friends the way to do an exercise, and the way he was showing them is a way that leads to shoulder injury. Now, I've had a shoulder injury before in the gym, and I know not to do that exercise. I know specifically you don't ever pick up a barbell in the middle, and you don't ever do this. So it's an upright row. You don't pull your elbows up because when you do, you put your, air, your elbows in external rotation. This is how you tear your rotator cuff. This is a really stupid exercise to do. A lot better exercises for that. 
And you'll have a lot of physical trainers show you doing this. No, don't do it. And any doctor will tell you why that's a dumb idea to do that. And but I didn't go over and correct them. They didn't ask for my help. Uh, but the, the thing is, is that, you know, don't go help somebody if you're not really competent and qualified uh, to help them. Uh, but is there somebody of whom you're critical and judgmental? And maybe as Brother Steve leads us on a song, what we need to do is ask God to forgive us for our critical and judgmental attitude. I'm pretty sure that we're hardwired by our depraved human nature to judge others. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have to say, judge not that you be not judged. Or he wouldn't have to say to people within a church, Judge not by men's appearances, but judge righteous judgment. There is a place for judgment in, in church if someone is living in open sin and you have to, to meet together as a church and you have to excommunicate that person so that they will repent because they're not being under the authority of God or the church. But he says, make sure it's not by appearances. Make sure it's by righteous judgment. In other words, it's backed up by the facts and it's based on God's law. But in general, we're not to judge. And so if you can think of somebody, maybe you've been a little judgmental, this would be a real time to get on your knees and pray and say, God, I have a hard time with the way this person is living their life and the choices they're making, but help me to see how to show the love of Christ to them instead of showing them my judgmental spirit. Let's sing.